Thank you, Mandy. Good to have you back for the day. I'm sure she was with her family here uh, in Kernersville celebrating Thanksgiving. Uh, she's up in Asheville, works with a disaster relief program up there. And so um, we're always glad to have her come back and sing. I, her dad pastors at my former church down in Lexington. And then uh, her mom works here in the kitchen. Just trying to figure out how to get her back here. <laughs> and we can do something about that. But uh, it's a blessing. A blessing to have her sing and a blessing to have her here today. Take your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. <clears throat> Mark chapter 6. We're going to come back to our series in the book of Mark, and I've entitled this message today, Believing Matters. Believing Matters. You could say that one of two ways. Let's try to play off of that. And so I want to preach a message today on Believing Matters. We're continuing our series, uh, joining the journey uh, with Jesus through the book of Mark and the call to discipleship on that journey and what that means. And so every passage, every paragraph is about what it means to be a disciple of Christ. That's the way you want to interpret this book, and you want to see that flow there. So you found your place. Stand with me now. We're going to read uh, God's Word here. Verse, chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. 1 to 6. And he went out from thence, and he came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is it which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon? Are, they not, are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could do there no mighty work, save that he laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. You may be seated. I don't know if you've ever had the chance or opportunity to go to Louisville. It's a cool city to go see. There's one thing that stands out if you go to Louisville, if you've been there, and you'll know it if you've been there, and so you'll probably know where I'm going to go with this story. But in 1952, there was a little 12-year-old boy. He got on his bicycle, and he lived on the west end side of Louisville. And he started riding his bicycle down the street and around the town, and all of a sudden, these older teenage thugs jumped his bike, stole it, and rode off. He came home crying to his dad. He told his dad. His dad called the police. The police came over to see him. And they got down like this to that little boy, and they said, now tell me what happened, son. And he started telling them the story of what happened. And then he looked at the police officer and said, I'm going to whoop that thief. And the police officer said, well, if you're going to whoop those thieves, you better, you better learn how to fight. And fight he did. The police officer that was standing there was Joe Martin. He was a part-time police officer and full-time professional boxing coach. The little boy, anybody know? Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. That's exactly right. So some of you know that story. It's an amazing story, isn't it? So he rose up through the ranks in Louisville. 14 years of age, he was decking boys and knocking them out in fights that were 20 years old and 19 years old. 
And he got greater and greater and greater. And pretty soon he started to say about himself, I am the greatest. Well, the sportscasters in Louisville couldn't stand Muhammad Ali because he was such a braggadocious. He was a big mouth. He big mouthed everywhere he'd go. He'd even write poems about the next fighter he was going to fight. And in that poem, he would say something like, I'm going to deck him in the ninth round. I'm going to beat him in the eighth round. I'm going to knock this guy out in the 11th round. And he would brag about that. And so the sportscasters in Louisville didn't like the man at all. And so you know what they called him? The Louisville Lip. The Louisville Lip. That was his name in 1960s, all throughout that. But he got famouser and famouser and famouser, and he soon beat Sonny Liston. He won the Olympics, and his fame started to go way beyond that. Now, if you go to Louisville today, you won't find one place in the whole town where anybody says about him the Louisville Lip. But you know what you will find? Muhammad Ali Avenue, Muhammad Ali Center, Muhammad Ali Institute at the University of Louisville, and now they just recently named the Louisville Airport, International Airport Muhammad Ali International Airport. I mean, if there's one thing that town does in Louisville is they honor Muhammad Ali. Let me tell you something. There was a day, though, he was an embarrassment to that town. But everything turned around, didn't it? Now, I told you that story because not only do I like that story, but I also told you that story because I want you to understand this is exactly what Jesus faced. When he came back to his hometown in Nazareth, he was rejected by his hometown folks. He wasn't the hometown hero. You'd think they'd give him a big old ticker parade. This man's been uh, casting out demons and healing people left and right. None of that. None of that. They were embarrassed by him. They were ashamed of him. Now, there's a message in this, and I want you to see it today because this is an incredible passage of Scripture that the, the book of Mark, or Mark himself, would include in the story of Jesus because he's trying to teach you about what it means to follow him, what it means to follow him. And so I'm going to get into this message today, and here's how I'm going to do it today. It, it didn't work out for me to get an outline, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a running commentary through these six verses. I want to cover more verses today, but next week I know I'll cover a bunch. But um, I, wanted to, I wanted to at least have this running commentary, and then I want to make about six applications at the end of the sermon. All right, and so that's how I'm going to do it today. Jesus comes to his hometown in Nazareth. He's returning with the disciples. It's important to note that because they're on a journey with him on discipleship, just like you are. And uh, the Bible says they were astonished at him. Now, the word astonished there is a word which means to be shocked, amazed, or to wonder at. That's the word in its definition. But all words have defining, uh, they're defined by their context, not just by their definition. So it's important you understand the context here is not using the word astonished in a good way. It's using it in a bad way. That's why when you get down to the lower verse, it says in verse 3 at the end, they were offended at him. That tells you the kind of astonishment they have. It wasn't a good astonishment. It was a bad astonishment. All right? So the power and wisdom of Jesus provokes astonishment, but not in a good way. They hear him preach in the synagogue that particular Saturday. And they ask five rhetorical questions. Five rhetorical questions. Just like five fingers on your hand. A complete 
evaluation of what they think of Jesus. Here's the five questions. Where did the man get this wisdom? Where did the man get this wisdom? What do they mean by that? They're actually mocking him. Where did the man, you think, well, this is incredible. No, no, they're saying he's not a rabbi. He grew up in this town. We know who he is. He, he didn't go to school to become a rabbi. He didn't follow any famous rabbi like Gamaliel in that area. He didn't go after any of those guys. So who does this guy think he is? That's what they're really saying. Where did he get his teachings? Uh, the second question, what kind of miracles are these he does? They're doubting the kind of miracles he does. Is it sleight of hand? Is it demonic? Like some of the leaders of the town were telling them. They're not saying, oh, this is great. They're saying he's a conniver, he's a trickster. He's not really worthy of being followed. You see, you get the feel for the context now? Okay, and let's go on. Is this the carpenter's son? Or is this the carpenter, it says there? Oh, I better read that again. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Okay, what does that mean, is this not the carpenter? Uh, the word there, carpenter, you think wood, but really the word in the Greek is a word for a stonemason. So Jesus probably spent more time cutting stones, but he also worked with wood too. They would build those yokes for animals out of wood. But most of their work was done in stone. If you go to that port part of Israel, there are stones everywhere. I could see why you'd be a stonemason. So technically he was a stonemason, but he worked with wood and stone. But they don't mention the name of his dad. Do you know every honorable person in the Bible mentions the name of their dad? They skip it. They didn't say, is this the carpenter's son of Joseph? They don't say that. They say the son of Mary. That's very unusual in Scripture to do that. What it's doing is it's doubting who Jesus is. Hey, we know the backstory on Jesus. We watched him grow up. We knew where he was born. He was raised in Nazareth, and truth of the matter is, Mary was illegitimate. Truth of the matter is, Joseph just took her in, but he never got her pregnant. They knew all those little stories that passed around town. And so they're doubting the veracity and the ability of Jesus. Is this not the carpenter's son, the son of Mary? Or just her name being mentioned implies illegitimacy of her son. That baby's out of wedlock. How could he be a rabbi? And then they say, and what about the fact of his brothers and sisters? They're in this hometown, James and Joseph and Judah and Simon and the sisters. What, is he, what are they trying to say there? They're trying to say they don't even believe in him. Your brothers and sisters don't even believe in you. They're not following you. They're not putting their faith and trust in you, Jesus. <laughs> you want us to do that? Your own brothers and sisters don't even believe in you. That's what it's really saying. Okay, so you have to understand that in the context, okay? So the Bible then says they were offended. Now, you ought to make a little note of this. The only one who believed in that whole town was his mom. <laughs> you know, 
It is something about mom. She'll believe in you no matter what, right? The only one who believed in that whole town was his mom. The rest were offended. You see that word offended there? It's the word scandalon. That's a Greek word, scandalon. We get the English word scandalized. Scandalized, to be profoundly offended. They were profoundly offended at Jesus. Don't come into this town. You embarrass us. It's a shame to have you back. The town would not identify with them because they were embarrassed. They shamed, he shamed them. Why? His past history, born illegitimately. The religious leaders said he was of a demon. He cast out by demons. This is interesting, isn't it? Your own hometown turns on you. Let me just say this before I go on. Let me just do a little application here. Does Christ serve as a scandal on for you? Does Christ serve as a scandal on for you? Are you embarrassed by him? Are you a secret Christian? You just kind of play cool when you're around folks, never let them know you're a, a say, uh, saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Never speak up the name of Jesus. Just, are, are you scandal on? Are you, are you offended by him? Is he an embarrassment to you? You don't really want anybody to know your real identity? The world will mock you for that. And if there is ever a pool in our society today to play it cool and coy because we're so criticized for who we are and what we believe as Bible-believing Christians. Listen, uh, uh, three weeks ago, I forget now exactly when, when I was at that uh, uh, Love Life walk and we were praying around the abortion clinic. There's a lot of opposition that comes to that abortion clinic. And so uh, I spoke that morning, gave a testimony about the, one of the people who got saved from our mobile unit and uh, Navi in our church, and then she got baptized, and I shared that testimony with everybody. Now, I, we went up and walked around the abortion, and we prayed, and after we prayed, we were walking back. When I got back, I was by a car, and I was by myself for just a moment looking for some of the folks from the church there as well to stand around, and when I did, this guy came up to me with an um, a iPhone and a mic, and he wanted to do a little interview with me. So I'm kind of excited about that, thinking he wants to do an interview with me about what I just said in the testimony about uh, how God used Triad Baptist Church and some of the folks at Triad. And so uh, I said, sure. First question out of his mouth. First question out of his mouth. I guess you're one of those right-wing radical Christians. Boy, I didn't expect that, let me tell you right there. I did not expect that kind of question. And I just kind of did a double take. I said, oh, this interview is not going to be what I expected. I suppose you're one of those right-wing radical Christians. I said, no, no, I'm one of those Bible-believing evangelical Christians. Why is it we always, the, the press always puts a prefix before a Christian every time you want to do an interview? I've had this happen to me before. Maybe not so in your face, but I've had it happen before. If you're a Christian, you're right-wing. If you're right-wing, you're radical. So you're never just a Christian. You never just don't believe the Bible. You are a right-wing, radical Christian. Now, the rest of the interview went fine because I just shared my heart with him why we were there and what we were doing. But the truth of the matter is, 
It is so easy in our culture because of the pressure we feel and because of the way we're perceived by our culture and the way the press wants us to be perceived. We play it cool. We play it coy. Don't speak up on those issues. Don't speak up on this because if you speak up on that, you're a radical right-wing Christian. Now, I'm just telling you, you cannot live your Christian life where Jesus is an embarrassment to you. If you'll do, you'll fall prey to so many churches today that are just playing it cool. Just playing it cool. Okay, let me say something else about this word scandalon. Scandalon in the Bible is often used for the building stones. And this is amazing as you tie it to Jesus being a mason, but it's used for building stones. When the, building, when the builders would choose a cornerstone for a building, they would go to the quarries. Now, there's huge quarries in Israel even today. They would go to these quarries, and they, the builder would examine the quality and strength of the cornerstone because the cornerstone had to be strong enough to keep the rest of the building and foundation stable. So they would look for one without flaws and cracks, and if they found any flaws or cracks, they would reject that cornerstone. They'd only take one without flaws and cracks. Now, let's go a little further. The Old Testament prophecies from Psalm 118.22 says, The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone in the program of God. That's a prophecy, okay? And then in the New Testament it says, Jesus Christ was the chief cornerstone and the prophets and the apostles were the foundation laid upon Jesus Christ, who was the cornerstone. What the prophecy is saying is that when Jesus comes into town, he will be scandalon. He, as the chief cornerstone, he is scandalon. He is the disgraced one. The starting of his rejection was here in his hometown by his own people. And it would stem out then to the whole nation, and then they would crucify him. Because they considered Jesus Christ flawed, imperfect, and repulsive, like a broken cornerstone. That's why Jesus says in verse 4, he gives this prophecy. Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. The only place you get rejected is in your own hometown. When you try to speak for God, your own family will turn on you. When you try to lift up the word of God, your own family will reject you. I don't want to hear it. I'm trying to speak to your heart here this morning because some of you go through this kind of stuff. And Jesus said that this prophecy, is it wasn't something he said. It was a well-known proverb in that day. It was a proverb of his rejection. Look at verse 5. Now, the Bible says, and he could do there no mighty work, save that just a few. He laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. Now, that's, that's an interesting verse. Jesus was rejected there, and, and uh, what he's saying here is the circumstances by which the Holy Spirit unleashed power into Jesus were not available. The way that the Holy Spirit would release power into Jesus in this particular city, because of the way they treated him, were not available. He could do a few miracles. He's still God, but he couldn't do a lot of miracles because there was no faith. There was no faith in the town. 
That's what you need to understand about that passage, okay? I'll come back to that in a little bit. But the lack of faith was a judgment of God on his hometown. God withholds his power from stiff-necked people. The people who reject him, he rejects them. He will not do a work in their heart if they are stiff-necked and reject him. And then look at verse 6. Still doing the running commentary, and he marveled because of their unbelief. See the word marveled there? It's the same word up in the other verse. I don't know why it's translated different, but it's the word astonished. It's the same word. Okay? They, he was astonished because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. Astonished. He wondered at. He was shocked. He was amazed. Okay? They were astonished because they were embarrassed. He was astonished because they had unbelief. They would not believe in him. Now, I first read this and I thought, well, there was many times people didn't have belief when Jesus was preaching and healing and doing all those things. I, I wonder why he's so amazed at this situation when he faced it every day of his ministry, probably. I think the best answer I could give you in a lot of the uh, commentaries that I ran to to figure this out was Jesus is surprised at the depth of their callousness. Jesus is surprised at the depth of their callousness. That they could be so, so blind and so stubborn. You know anybody who's so blind and so stubborn? And, and they, Jesus is surprised by that. Because what he knows is with unbelief comes hostility. And it won't be long until they turn on him and they come at him and want to see him crucified. And so Jesus is looking at their hostility that they won't believe in him and he knows soon they're going to hate me. See, it never, it's never kind of neutral. Somebody says, well, I don't really have a feeling on Jesus. Yes, you do. Either have a feeling to believe in Jesus or you really start moving away from him and you hate him because of what he demands on your life. See, they saw the clear glory of God manifest in Jesus Christ, and they closed their hearts. And Jesus, their very salvation, became a stumbling block to their salvation. Now, lock that in your heart, okay? That's, that's some of the commentary that I wanted to uh, just make sure you hear that, because I hear it all the time. I hear it all the time. I have situations going on right now with my family where we're in deep conflict. I'm not talking about my immediate family. I'm talking about my sisters and my sisters and family on that side. We have some deep conflicts that we disagree biblically over. Some of you do too. But I'll even share the gospel with someone and they'll say, I don't need Jesus. I don't need Jesus. I don't need him. There's... I think there's no more foolish statement than that in life. They'll tell you everything they need. I need a wife. I need money. I need a house. I need retirement. I need all those things, but I don't need Jesus. I can't think of anything more foolish to say than you don't need Jesus. You need all of those things because without Jesus, there's no hope in this life or in the world to come. The Lord's loving this. He's just letting it rain down here today. And you can just feel it, can't you? You can feel it in your spirit. It's just raining down, all right? But what is it about Jesus that offends you? 
You may be in this room right now and you may be offended by Jesus. What is it about Jesus that offends you? You know what the greater danger is? That God could be offended by you. That God could be offended by you. All right, now let me give you some. I got six applications. Six applications. I want to give them to you today, just based on what I just taught you there from verses one to six. And I want to just, I was just sitting back and I was reflecting on this and I got some of these and they just started coming to me and I was like, this is kind of cool as you just kind of let the Spirit of God speak to you and you meditate and then he just kind of speaks to your heart. And so here's some that I had. Here's application number one. Jesus was very average. Jesus was very average. He started his full-blown public ministry at 30 years of age. He goes back to his hometown. So his hometown where he lived from infancy to 30 years of age. I want to tell you this, okay? I want you to get this. He was an average Joe. He was an average Joe. He didn't do one miracle. Okay? He didn't do anything out of the ordinary. He was just an average Joe in his hometown. He worked with stone and wood. There was hundreds of guys that did that. Worked with stone and wood. He's just a guy. Get that, let that sink in. He's just a guy in his hometown. The town didn't think much of him either. Sometimes we get the idea that Jesus, when he was in his hometown, he went to school, he must have got straight A's in his school. You know, he didn't have to study. That's what we think sometimes. That's not true, okay? I'll bet he had all the friends in the world he could want. I'll bet he was the star quarterback. He could throw the ball right where it needed to go. But the truth of the matter is, that's not true. That is not true at all about Jesus. Think about this for a minute, okay? He wasn't any of those things. He was just average. Now, why am I pointing that out? Well, first off, are you average? Are you average? Isn't it something we don't tell our kids? Go out there and be average. <laughs> we never say that to our kids. We never say, go out. When you throw that ball, throw it in mediocrity. Throw it like you don't mean it. We never say that to our kid. What do we do? You be the best you can be in that school. You get the best in the sports. You be the best in your grades. You be the best in character. Why? You're a decker. Get out there and do that. That's, that's the way we raise our kids. We want them to be the best they can be. We want them to be above average. Everybody wants that as parents. It's an amazing thing to be above average. And I was, I was thinking about this. But what happens... If your kid grows up and he's just average, Jesus started for 30 years as average. I want to tell you, that's a God thing. That's a God thing. Because God chose the foolish to shame the wise, God chose the weak to confound the strong. That's how God works. Why? So he'd get the glory, not you. Has that ever occurred to you that above average people take the glory? They like to take the glory. And the truth of the matter is, God says, I want to take some average people 
and I want to use them. Now, don't say this out loud to anybody here today, okay, when you're leaving. But if you're willing to admit you're pretty average, I want to say something to you. You're in good company. You're in good company. Okay, let that encourage you, all right? Let's go to number two. Number two, let's be for the next generation. Let's be for the next generation. You know what occurred to me? Is Jesus grew up, he goes back to his hometown, and he's rejected. What an opportunity to have a ticker time parade for this guy. You could have celebrated all the things he had done. You didn't do anything for him. And, and, and God started to speak to my heart. I've been here 25 years. 25 years. And we see these kids grow up. And I've seen a lot of kids grow up at our church. And I'm watching them get involved here. And, and, and if we're not careful as adults... In this room, we can be dismissive of the next generation. We can be critical of the next generation. Yes, I get it. They certainly don't think like us or act like us. I understand that. And it pains me to say I'm old now, by the way, just so you know that. But God forgive us if we do something to let the next generation know we are rejecting them. God forgive us. If you have a spirit about you that rejects the next generation. That's what they did in Jesus' hometown. Don't you do it here. Don't you do it here. Let me just ask, there's not many, there'll be a lot in the next service for our teenagers. But, but if you're a teenager here, let's just use the age 12 to 19 would you stand for just a moment if you're in this room? 12 to 19. Is there anybody in this room? 12 to 19. Okay, stand up. Anybody else? Okay, there's a few at the back. All right, stay standing for just a minute. All right, stay standing for just a minute. Now, I want you to see those people that just stood. I know you're embarrassed. You didn't think I'd do this to you, but let me just, just stay standing there for a minute, okay? I, I want to say this. I wrote this in my notes. If you should grow up and God brings you back to Triad Baptist Church, I want to do everything in my power as your pastor that if you follow the Lord, you use your God-given gifts, and you come back here, I want to see to it that I and this church let you lead here. I don't think I've ever said that, but if in the next 10 years you come back here, I want you, I want each of you right here to set the example for us. And I will promise you, I will not look down on you. This is still your church. And I want it to still be your church if you do come back to this town and live again. And if you don't, you go to some other church and some other ministry. Be the best you can be there. But if you come here, I will let you lead. All right, you can be seated. Now, now I want to ask you if you're 25 and older, 
And I skipped a few years in there because those are college years, all right? But if you're 25 and older, okay? If you knew, 25 and older, okay? That's a lot of you, all right? If you knew in the next 10 years these kids would come back and they would live their life for God, would you be willing to follow them? Would you stand if you're 25 and older and you'd be willing to follow them if they lived their life for God? Now you 12 to 19, look around. Every one of them said by standing they would follow you if you live for God. That's a beautiful thing. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, if you're 19 to 25, you have nothing to do with this illustration, okay? If you were in that range, you have nothing to do with this illustration. I didn't know how to fit you in, but here we go, okay? Many of those adults that stood don't even know how to reset an iPhone. <laughs> they don't know how to reset an iPhone, all right? You can, though, if you're, if you're uh, 12 to 19. I'm sure you can reset an iPhone. But they want this to be the church that you lead. They want this to be the church that you lead. Don't ever, don't ever think we don't, any, we don't want anything to do with you. Don't ever think that. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no man despise thy youth. If you are young and you're under 20 years of age, the Bible says let no man despise your youth. In other words, that's a command to us who are older than 20 that we should never look down. We should never look down on those that are younger than us. So we're never to despise them. But it says to the ones that are under 20, but be thou an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. What's that mean? I'm never supposed to look down on someone who's younger than me. They don't do it like I do it. They don't act like I do it. They don't dress like I do it. They don't talk like I do it. But I'm never supposed to despise them just because they're so different than me. I am to be an example. I mean, I am to follow them and willing to, if they're willing to set an example. In other words, if you're under 20, make it easy for us to follow you. That's what that means. Make it easy for us to follow you. Faith and purity and love and speech. Don't go swearing. Don't go misusing your mouth. Make every word you say thought through and your conduct. And if you'll do that, you'll make it easy for us to follow you and we'll not look down on you. I, I, I just thought of this. Let's be the church. If our kids come back here, we open-armed accept them. We open our and accept them. Okay, number three. Number three. Trust God's timing with your family. Trust God's timing with your family. Your immediate family, like Jesus' immediate family, like Jesus' immediate family, may not believe the word of God yet, or believe in Jesus yet. 
Jesus' brothers and sisters did not help the work of Jesus. They opposed the work of Jesus. Get that in your head. They did not help the work of Jesus. They opposed the work of Jesus. They were offended too. They were offended. This should encourage you. If it took Jesus a long time to win his brothers and sisters, it will take you a long time to win your family members. The brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ did not follow him till after the resurrection. So during his lifetime, he didn't have one family follower. Not one family follower except his mother. They rejected him. But eventually they got saved. And I know, I know what you're thinking. I don't know how long I have left. What if they don't get saved? All I can say to you is entrust yourself to the one who loves them more than you. He loves them more than you. And it may be after you die. Hey, let me tell this story. Tim Wall was telling me this story a couple weeks ago when his uncle uh, Dennis died. November 8th. 6.15 in the morning, he died. 2019 in August, his aunt died. They were husband and wife, Dennis and the aunt, Virginia. Virginia was on her deathbed in the ICU over in Greensboro. And Dennis was in the room, Tim Wall was in the room, and one of her dying requests to her husband, Dennis, was, One request I have for you, Dennis, I want you to get saved before I die. She's close to death. She's right at the edge of death. And he says to his wife, no, I'm not going to get saved. He rejects the dying wish of his wife and refuses to get saved. He was raised up in the east side of Manhattan, the lower side of east side of Manhattan. He was abused in a school of nuns, had all kinds of things in his background. He said, no, I will not get saved. So he just died November 8th at 6.15 in the morning. And Tim Wall told his aunt, whispered in his ear, before she, whispered in her ear before Virginia died, I'll work on him. <laughs> I'll work on him. And work on him he did. Because when he went into the ICU, the same ICU she was in in Greensboro, Tim Wall was there in the room with him. He told him, you had an opportunity. I was there in the room. You had an opportunity to accept Christ, and you rejected him. Your time is running out. And I'm telling you to get saved right now. Would you like to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Would you repent of your sin and claim him as Lord and Savior? He couldn't talk. He was that far gone. He was at the point of death. He looked at Tim, and he just kind of shook his head. Yes. And Tim, right there in the ICU, led him to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and he received Christ by faith. There's that much time left. That much time left. And I thought about Aunt Virginia. Don't give up. Some of your family members may come to Christ after you die. But don't give up. And thank God people like Tim Wall didn't give up. Continue to have a witness to his uncle. They come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ.
Trust God's timing with your family. All right, number four. Number four. Our faith impacts the Lord's work. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to have to go through this one quickly. I had more to say here. But Jesus could do no more mighty works there. He did a few because he's the Lord. He's God. But he will not force himself on us. I don't understand all this. I wish I could preach more on this. But he uses our faith to accomplish what he wants to do. It's not just God just goes and does mighty things. God does mighty things according to our faith. God does mighty things according to our faith. And that's, that's what you want to walk away with here today. He invites us. I don't understand all this, but he invites us into this dynamic relationship to be the rescue mission to the world. And when we draw near to God and we believe God and we say, I take you at your word. Fear not. Okay, God, I'm going to trust you. Because I get scared sometimes. Am I going to make it? What's, what happens if this happens? No, no, God, I'm just going to fear not. God, God says, draw near to me. Draw near to me. And we believe him. There, there is a faith component to this walk that God responds to. There's a faith component that God responds to. The work of God is proportional to our faith in your life. The work of God is proportional to our faith in your life. And that's a beautiful thing to know, and I wish I could say more about that, but I, I just want you to hear that. Okay, I'm going to go on so I cover these five. Failure is to be expected among the faithful. Failure is to be expected among the faithful. Jesus wasn't the hometown hero. Now let me tell you something. This must have been refreshing for the disciples. Because Jesus had never been rejected. Jesus never got turned down. Jesus healed everybody. Jesus cast out the demons. Everything went well. But here it didn't go so well. And the disciples needed to see that. And you need to see that. Sometimes it's not going to go so well. And you need to be rejected. If you haven't been rejected, I wonder why. See, Jesus was rejected so that you could learn that you'll be rejected. And that's part of it. And that's part of what it means to be rejected. And so failure is to be expected among the faithful. I love this. Because in the next verses, he's going to send out those disciples to do the work on their own. And it's not always going to go awesome for them. Started out awesome, but then they crucified Peter upside down. Started out awesome, but then they exiled John to an island of Patmos for the remainder of his life. Started out awesome, but there was some rejection. And then his followers after that, you look at the rejection of his followers through history. The apostle Paul boiled in a vat of oil. Wasn't so awesome for Paul in many places he go, and he'd go to the next place, and he'd check into the jail. That's what he did. He checked into jails wherever he'd go, because that's where he's going to end up. See, it wasn't so awesome for those guys. So failures to be expected among the faithful, and you should expect it in your life. And if you have faced it and experienced it for Jesus Christ, praise God, you're right on track. Number six, it's not our sin Jesus marvels at. It's our unbelief. not our sin jesus marvels at it's our unbelief jesus never looks at people's sin and says i can't believe you did that <laughs> man that was bad you are really sinful i had no idea you were like that i can't believe that man how lost are you 
Jesus never says that. I don't care how bad your sin is. I don't care what your regrets are. I don't care what you've done wrong. Jesus never looks at your sin and says, that's really bad. He doesn't marvel at that. So many of you are ashamed of your sin and your past. So many of you are ashamed of your mistakes. Let me just tell you something. Jesus is fully aware. And if I could just say it so you remember it, and that doesn't freak him out. It doesn't freak him out. He's fully aware of your regrets and your sins and your mistakes. Because he knew one day he'd put him on a cross. He knew one day he'd shed his blood for those sins. He's not, he is not surprised. He is not astonished by that. But he is surprised at your unbelief. He is astonished that you won't believe him. He is surprised that you won't put your sin under the blood. And you won't believe he forgave everything you've ever done wrong. He is astonished you won't believe that. He is astonished you're filled with fear. It's your unbelief. Fear is unbelief. That's all it is. He's astonished at that. He's not astonished at your sins. He's astonished that you won't believe him. You're, you're so full of regrets. He's astonished at that. I put those all under the blood. I'm not shocked. I'm not still trying to remind you of those. That's someone else trying to remind you. It's not me. But he is astonished when you can't get over those. When you can't believe him for what he said. That's what he's astonished at. Your unbelief. Have you caused Jesus to marvel at you? Have you caused Jesus to be astonished at you? I'm going to tell you, it takes a step of faith to get past that. A step of faith to get past that. Okay, I'm out of time. Let's pray. If you're here today, I want to tell you something. Jesus was an embarrassment to his hometown, but there will be a day and every eye shall see him and every tongue shall confess him and every knee shall bow. Let me tell you something about that day. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, it won't take any faith to believe it then because you'll be right there and you'll see it with your own eyes. doesn't matter who you are, saved or unsaved, you will be there and it won't take any faith because you'll be there. It'll be so real to you when you bow. It'll be so real to you when you confess. It'll be so real to you when you look on him with your eyes. But let me tell you something. Today's not the day of seeing is believing. Today is the day of seeing is not believing. In other words, it takes the faith right now to believe in Jesus Christ. That he's the only answer to your soul. The only answer to your sin. If you've never received Jesus Christ and confessed him as your Lord and Savior and claimed what he did for you on the cross. You will spend an eternity in hell of your own free will. You're not predestined there. It's your own free will. But you have an opportunity today to put your faith in Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, save me. Save me. If you're here today and you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ, and you need to be saved, you need to settle that right now. Would you lift up your hand and say, that's me. I need to settle that. 
You just lift up your hand. You're right in here right now. And you say, no one's looking around, but you'd say, that's me. You lift up that hand. Yes, I see that hand. Is there another hand? Is there another hand? Say, that's me. That's me. Just pray this prayer. Dear God, there's nothing I can do to save myself. I can't count on my good works. But you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sins. I trust him as my Lord and my Savior. Save me. If you, under the authority of God's word, if you prayed that prayer, I believe you're saved. That's the start of your journey. And we'd like to help you. Let us know. Let us know. Say, I've come to faith in Christ on that Sunday, and I want to walk with God. Now, if you're here and you're saved, I don't want Jesus to be astonished at you. There may be something in your life right now that you're struggling with. And you're having a hard time putting your faith in that and believing him. I don't know what that is or where God's speaking to you, but I just pray you'll surrender that and say, God, I'm going to believe you for what you said about my life. I'm going to trust you. Father, take this message now. Stir the hearts of your people. Simple thoughts, but a wonderful, wonderful passage to reflect on as we gather here and worship you today because it's you that speaks under all of this. So may your voice now speak into the hearts of your children. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Scott's going to lead us in this song. If there's a need in your heart today, you come. The altar's open.